The third world is where we maintain the best of modern science and you could say modernity and civilization together with the best of our wisdom traditions and the cosmovisions of indigenous peoples. That starts to make sense and becomes really coherent uh, with a very simple and deceptive statement, which is everything on earth that happens, happens somewhere. The, the larger vision of where we're going is that we have to compost our planetary civilization. We have to compost this extractive globalized system. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Joe Brewer. Joe is the co-founder of the Design School for Regenerating Earth. Joe's a polymath. He's got a background in physics, math, philosophy, atmospheric science, complexity research, cognitive linguistics. Prior to the Design School for Regenerating Earth, Joe was the co-founder and research director of Culture2, which was a culture design lab for social good. He's also a former fellow of the Rockridge Institute, which was a think tank founded by George Lakoff to analyze political discourse for the progressive movement. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you because Joe is so able to take extremely complex matters, issues, and ideas, and I wouldn't say make them simple, but certainly understandable. I learned a lot in this conversation, specifically when it comes to terms that I really hadn't been aware of, like the third world from an indigenous point of view. This idea of taking the Western advances in science, as well as the ancient wisdoms and indigenous knowledge bases and systems, and bringing them together in order to create spaces for different kinds of understandings of the world. Check us out on www.coconut-thinking.com. You'll find a lot of resources there, articles, podcasts, links. Again, it's www.coconut-thinking.com, and I'll leave space for my conversation with Joe. Joe, I'm so excited to have you on the show. You just came back from a tour of the Northeast of uh, the United States, or at least the Great Lakes area, should we say. And uh, now you're back home, and I'm really keen to hear about your work, what you have been discussing, the, the, the audiences you've been talking to, and a lot of the responses you've been getting. Uh, we'll start with uh, the first question that we ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Mm, thank you, Benjamin. It's so nice to be here with you. I'm just already enjoying the welcoming energy of of you as a person. So it's it's lovely to meet you. Um, who am I and what story do I want to tell? I guess, um, who am I? I am a Missouri chicken farmer who uh, grew beyond the roots of the coop. <laughs> um, I'm someone who has a, uh, a stubborn um, reluctance to depart from truth which mean I earnest, means I earnestly seek what is true and real, even if it's difficult, and that I have an insatiable hunger to know how the world works. And the more I learn about the world, the more I fall in love with it. And so if you think of like formal training in, an, in a formal education sense, I studied physics, philosophy, dance, theater, martial arts, cognitive and behavioral sciences, cultural evolution, earth system science and complexity science, all at different times, but all with a direction toward consilience or toward um, creating an integrated holistic understanding of the world. Um, the story I want to tell is the story of Gaia coming alive. The story about how human beings are part of a living planet that's four and a half billion years old with life going back at least three and a half billion years and some very strange twists and turns in evolutionary history 
gave rise to humans, this strange bipedal mammal, that is creating a mass extinction event, risking our own extinction, and withholding, I would say withholding, because it's actually ours to give as a species. We are withholding the gift of our compassion and consciousness in service to the planet. And what does it mean for, for the planet to gain human consciousness? And I think that's the story I want to talk about today. Brilliant. And I can't wait to explore some of these uh, issues and these questions, some of these points. Before we do so, I'll ask you the other question that we ask all our guests, which uh, really tries to get us to be in a, tries to create a shared space about a word that we use that we don't always create a shared space for, which is how do you define learning? What is learning to you? Mm -hmm. So I think I would, I would give two somewhat technical definitions to start just to give us an anchor. So one of them is that learning is um, at least I'll say it this way. Learning is updating of an information system to be able to augment behavior in service to a purposeful outcome, which is the way that someone like William James would have said it in the 1890s, back in the early days of psychology. Organisms that have brains, I would say it's updates to, uh, to synaptic structures in the brain to augment information processing to enable that change in behavior or to be adaptive and responsive to an environment. And so that would be like a technical way of saying it. And then the other way that I would say it from a cultural evolution point of view is that learning is the social transmission of information to enable, so, so maybe I should, should caveat this, that non-social organisms don't work this way. So this is not learning for all cultural evolution, but cultural evolution for our species, and I think you could make the case for all mammals, is based on the social transmission of information, which is basically that you can observe or receive information in some way from your environment that enables you to copy, imitate um, something that someone else is doing or augment your own understandings and your own action based on that information. And that the social transmission, this learning one from another, such as the way that an, a parent of a newborn child can smile into the face of the child and increase the frequency of smiling, that it's actually going through the synaptic structures and it's re replicating the, the behavioral pattern. That this is something really key because I want to emphasize this in the way that we go into learning and the role of learning in the, the precarious moment that we find ourselves in as humanity today. And what about non-mammals, uh, octopuses, even even plants and trees. I mean, is, are there signs as well that that they learn, that they adapt, uh, and 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 be able to have the same kind of, perhaps a little bit more independent concepts of what learning is? Yeah, I would say that um, when we go to the first definition of learning, which is some kind of augmentation of an information processing system, that sounds really abstract. But now, if you think if the information processing system is the physiology and morphology. You know, the chemistry and the and the structure of a plant, then the plant learns where the sunlight is as it grows and changes. And that's an information processing that creates an adapted or augmented behavioral response. So when we think in that way, we're already going down the rabbit hole of metaphysics that we could say the emergence of life on an otherwise dead spinning rock of a planet with just the right information ecology of a solar system would also be learning, but just at a, at a, at a, at a at the scale of like stellar and planetary evolution because it's an information processing system. So I find that perspective, you know, when we give it the granularity of examples 
we're like, oh, that is extremely general. And that allows us to consider all kinds of evolving patterns. So the pattern of planetary evolution or stellar evolution could be seen as a cosmic learning process, just as a plant that doesn't have a brain has physiology and morphology, and those things reveal the patterns of learning across the lifespan of the organism. So I would say it's very general and very inclusive, but that I, I want to be able to focus on social learning in organisms that have brains, and then specifically to mammals that also have empathy capacities that are different from, say, reptilian brains. And then to go from there into semantics and symbolism and other things that get us closer and closer to what is unique about humans. And then allowing the gradations to remain. And I guess I'm going to, to try to see if we can also explore this, this concept of Gaia. And, uh, and, and Gaia is maybe something that some of our listeners aren't necessarily familiar. Maybe they've heard about the, 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 the idea. Could you, could you go a little bit and explain what, what, uh, what, what that might look like? And, and also, I'm going to ask you to see if, if it's possible that, that, uh, that our world, that the Earth learns, as you already started to hint at. Yeah, and that's actually the same question, which is what's so beautiful. So let's start. Who is Gaia? Well, Gaia is a mythic figure from ancient Greek philosophy and mythology, the goddess of the earth. So Gaia is a goddess. So if you think of the humanized personification of the planet as a spiritual being, that's Gaia in a mythic sense. Now, what is Gaia in a physical sense? And you'll notice that the ancient Greeks were onto something. So Gaia, as we articulate from the contemporary world of today with everything we know about the planet, and especially from the field of Earth system science. Gaia is a hypothesis, so it's a scientific conjecture that is based on evidence that seeks to interpret that evidence to support a model, a scientific model. And that scientific model is trying to make sense of the dynamics of planet Earth and this profound ability of the Earth to self-organize. And the question of the Gaia hypothesis is, once there is life on Earth, does the living part of the Earth create a self-organizing pattern that then to quote um, one of the biomimicry experts, Janine Benyes, where it, life creates conditions that are conducive to life. So that statement, life creates conditions conducive to life, is the Gaia hypothesis. What it says is, once the planet has life, does life change things like plate tectonics? Does it change atmospheric composition of chemicals? Does it change things to maintain temperature, pressure, acidity, things, you know, physical parameters that are necessary for life? And that's what the Gaia hypothesis is about, is whether the planet is able to, in some way, detect and modify certain parameters that are needed for life to maintain the conditions of life. Another way of saying this is the Goldilocks, the Goldilocks dilemma, which is that life has existed for between 3.6 and 3.8 billion years. It's a whole geologic and paleontological argument for that, but that's, that's where we stand with our current evidence. And um, if there was life before, it was quickly destroyed by asteroids hitting, the heating of the Earth's surface, boiling away water, things like that. But so we're talking about three and a half billion years. As soon as there was life, there has never not been life. Or said another way, for three and a half billion years continuously, there has been life on Earth. So what is the role of life for maintaining the conditions conducive to life? That is the idea of Gaia. 
So now when we ask, can the planet learn? We might say, well, the first living beings of the planet created a different kind of learning system than just geology, chemistry, and physics. They started to create a pattern of, um, because life is carbon-based, and there's a lot of carbon in the Earth's crust and also in the magma and the different layers all the way down, you know, the Earth's core, you get more iron and you get some change in composition there. But in the, the middle strata of the interior of the entire Earth, there's a huge amount of carbon. More than 99.9% .9 of all carbon on Earth is in rocks. So what that means is all life emerged from rocks, returns to rocks through, sed through sedimentation and decomposition. Think of like seashells falling to the ocean floor as sediment. They return to the Earth's crust. That, that chemical cycle of carbon changes the chemistry of the Earth as a rock, and it changes the composition of water and air that are important for life. And in that way, we can start to elaborate, you know, just, that's the, the teaser version of a much longer story, of how life can be a learning process for how the evolution of an entire planet goes. And so maybe I'll stop there to just allow you to nudge us in a new direction. But I would say that if Gaia hypothesis is correct, which there's now strong supporting evidence that it is correct, then we could clearly say the Earth is a learning system that combines living and non-living parts. Now let's recognize that's a philosophical debate, which part's living and which part's not, to let that complexity sit for a moment. But that, that would, that would um, say like QED, we have proven what we set out to prove. The Earth is a living learning system uh, because of these interaction patterns. But, but what I love about your description, you know, it does make sense. Like you say, like you, we could we could look at it depending on the parameters that we that we create for life. And, and the one, one of them that you that you mentioned was uh, the ability to self-organize, the, the autopoiesis of it all. And, and and if we look at the planet, and if we look at each individual cell in our bodies, it's the same concept. Each individual cell also is the ability to self-organize to, to to interact with its more or less environment and get energy from it and 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 release some energy out of it. Um, and of course, this is layman's term from someone who's not a biologist, but I think you know I'll, I'll stumble through it. So there seems to be kind of a, a a connection here between the cells that make up our own body and the Earth as well. We're, we're connected in the sense of of what life is, vitality, and, and that should in itself create an open space to saying, "Gosh, we are life, like the Earth is life, like like the world is life." Yeah, and that is like literally true from the technical perspective of science. Now, then we go back to the mythic. Why is mythic important? Because mythic teaches us lessons about ethical behavior, and it helps orient us to our cosmovision, our understanding of the cosmos. And human culture is very flexible in its expressions. There are many different cultures, many different cosmovisions. But what's beautiful about this way of thinking about the interpretation of the science is that it is deeply resonant and deeply consistent with many indigenous cosmovisions. So the wisdom traditions of the human, the, you know, the aggregate of the human experiment and all of the wisdom traditions of the world are in a kind of resonance and harmony with this technical understanding of the dynamic Earth. And they are converging to each other, which is part of the story we need to be telling ourselves and something we could explore today. What um, the Kogi people of the Santa Marta de Sierra, the the Sierra Nevada, which is a region in northern Colombia, the northern tip of South America. They describe the third world 
they use this language, third world, not the way you know, economic development in the UN. They say the third world is the ones who are not developed in a particular model. Here, the third world is cosmological, cosmovision. The first world is the world of indigenous wisdom traditions. The second world is the adolescent cultures, you know, the cultures that really haven't matured very well yet of civilization and science and technology. And the third world is where those two meet that we're entering into a place of planetary consciousness, which our indigenous wisdom traditions generally did not have. They had landscape scale or regional consciousness. They identified with a, a watershed or a mountain range or some region, but they didn't actually know the planet because to know the planet, we had to build science. The, the, field of, the many fields of science gave us the understanding of the whole earth. You know, putting satellites in space, learning plate tectonics, ocean currents and you know, weather stations and on and on. And so to bring those two together is to enter the third world. The third world is where we maintain the best of modern science and you could say modernity and civilization together with the best of our wisdom traditions and the cosmovisions of indigenous peoples. And so that's part of the story of the earth becoming conscious of itself through humans. Humans becoming conscious that we are part of the living earth and therefore, the Earth has consciousness if we do, like de facto. If you're part of the Earth and you have consciousness, part of the Earth has consciousness, you. And so therefore, the Earth has consciousness. And so this allows us to have consciousness of consciousness, or that thing sometimes called metacognition. We can know that we know. We can know what our theory of mind is. And we can know that the Earth is consciousness and know that we are conscious of it. And that combination allows us to become conscious as the consciousness of the earth. We become awake and aware as the consciousness of the earth. And this relates to very practical things, like what do you do with water or soil? You know, like I do a lot of reforestation and ecosystem restoration work. What If I'm conscious of the earth, what do I do with water? There's a dry stream bed and a landscape that's deforested and all the topsoil is eroded away. What is my role as part of the consciousness of the earth for that land? And so this becomes, it goes from the philosophical into the deeply practical, which is how do I manage the water that falls on the earth in the place where I am for the future of my own children and grandchildren? And so this, now we can move from the mythic and the philosophical, even the technical, from that all the way into the very practical. Um, so I'm just mapping the terrain for wherever we might go next. No, that's beautiful. And 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 uh, and on this map, there's there's a few landmarks. And the first is that we start talking about biology and and the connections with ancient wisdoms. There's also the idea of the physics. I mean, you mentioned that that you have a background in physics as well. Quantum physics also connects with 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 ancient wisdoms about the connections. And and, and so in Western culture, we've separated those, we've siloed those those sciences, which may may sometimes need to be siloed for various reasons and maybe sometimes reconnected for other reasons, but but there's many different entry points, or should I say connections between Western science and ancient cultures. What, what I'm particularly interested here is, is this idea of the third world that you mentioned, um, which is a, a new concept to me, but what it, what it makes me think is sometimes we see this linearity, you talk about economic development, we see this linearity between uh, on one one side uh, is is traditional, and and the other side is modernity, and and there's a line, there's a line. But but what you're talking about is not having a line. It's it's more like having 
just a, a new space to enter, bringing in the best of both of these worlds. I had this beautiful conversation when we were in the greater Takaranto bioregion. Takaranto is the Algonquin word for the city of Toronto. It's actually the name that was given to the city. And there's a, a wonderful man there named Dr. Dan Longboat, who's from the Iroquois nation. He's in the Mohawk tradition, the Haudenosaunee. Um, and they are part of the language family of the Algonquin peoples. So they've ancestrally been in that region of North America for at least 14,000 years. Now they would say longer and we have evidence back 14, so whatever it is, it's very long. Certainly longer than the European settlers who've been there just for a few hundred years. And when he and I had a conversation, we were exploring the third world. And what we found as we talked was that we repeatedly came from the same ethic of care. That the scientific worldview and the indigenous worldview of the, of the Haudenosaunee people both led us to the same ethic of care for water and soil, for biodiversity, for cultural history, for social justice and ethics. We actually found we were at the same place. And I think the difference, like why do we need both if they both come to the same ethic of care, is that the ethic of care does not tell you how to activate or manifest the ethic of care. But if we know earth system science, if we know how the planet works, then our ethic of care is more refined and more holistic. Just like if we take indigenous knowledge about this particular native plant that's processed in a certain way with another native plant to produce a particular textile or a particular kind of medicine, that that cultural knowledge is very specific and very holistic, which modern medical science and modern nutritional science are pretty immature or less developed, more reductionistic and technocratic. And so there's actually a way of saying the indigenous practices, what's sometimes called traditional ecological knowledge or TEK, is actually more advanced than modern science. But it's more advanced in a different way. It's more advanced in a practical sense. They figured out what works cumulatively over thousands of years by always living in the same place and evolving their practices. So they may not technically know how specific molecules bind the way that an organic chemistry lab could figure out. But when scientists, like when botanists came to Columbia, which is where the field of ethnobotany was born, there's a book called One River written by Wade Davis that tells the history of, of ethnobotany and most of it was in Columbia between the 1940s and 1960s. They discovered things like um, there was a type of mushroom that you could eat and as you ate that type of mushroom, it regulated your serotonin levels. And then much later, when they learned how to synthesize it in a lab, you get Prozac and Ritalin and these other things. But the active molecule was first discovered in a mushroom in the Amazonian rainforest in Colombia. And so the indigenous people used that mushroom to manage neurotic behavior in the way that a modern-day psychiatrist might do but they didn't know the molecule. They didn't know its chemical structure. And yet, if you look at their vision quests and the cosmic geometry that they would have, you might see patterns of that molecule and wonder where they got it and whether they did know the molecule, but that's conjecture. It's actually hard to know. So, so letting that sit aside that they may have known, they may not have. 
And they probably didn't because they didn't invent microscopes. You know, they, they didn't have these um, spectrograms that they could do to look at the, uh, the spin orbits of electrons and their interaction patterns to create an electromagnetic spectrum that tells you their bonding structure you know, where chemistry and physics meet. But they did know how to use that mushroom to manage behavior within their culture. And that's why the botanist discovered it. Was he was talking with people in that culture said, so, you know, what kinds of plants do you eat? And someone said, well, you know, I know you're talking about plants, but here's this mushroom. And we like to use it in a, in a tea. And we drink it when we're feeling stressed and it helps us calm down. And they're like, oh, I'll collect some of those specimens and I'll take them back to Harvard. And we'll, uh, we'll leave them there in our, in our specimen case. And then, you know, a chemist comes along and analyzes some of the molecules. And so this blending of what do you learn from the molecular chemistry and what do you learn from the indigenous practice? They're different knowledge. They're different knowledge systems. And so they tell us different things, just like the three blind men and the elephant. Here, the learning is about consilience. The learning is that you bring together integration of pieces of knowledge, in this case, perspectives of knowledge and the bodies of knowledge support that they have into a more, more holistic understanding. Because the organic chemistry does not tell you how to care for the forest where that mushroom is found. Whereas the indigenous practices of caring for the river and the biodiversity and the forest is why that mushroom was still there. You know, they didn't come through bulldozers and cut down the forest, denude the land and kill the mycelium and kill off the mushrooms. So that ethic of care from the indigenous culture, which is absent in the technocratic space of a chemistry lab, and we know there are lots of problems with the way modern day technical science is done from an ethical point of view, you know, ethical treatment of animals and so on and patenting of life and all kinds of weird stuff that indigenous people would never think of doing. And so bringing the ethic and the cultural practices and the ecological embeddedness together with the technical knowledge, well, that's beautiful in both directions because the scientists need that, those ethical and ecological frameworks as well. Um, so I, I think of it in that way, that um, the selectivity or the bias in this, instead of being critical, like what's wrong with this one, what's limited about that one, is the other way, is what's complementary synergistic, and when this synergy occurs, what is new that you wouldn't have if you didn't combine them? That's the heuristic. And with that heuristic, you see the convergence of knowledge, the different kinds of knowledge converge on shared reinforced and elaborated understandings. And that's what I think is really powerful about this idea of the third world is that the Kogi people also know, you know they may not have used the word Holocene, but they know the world is changing. They're very attuned to their environments. They can sense all the changes in their environments. They can sense the changing weather patterns and the changing water patterns and all kinds of things. And so um, they know the world is changing. So they don't have to call it the Holocene to say there was a geologic era after the last ice age in which their civilization existed for thousands of years. And now we are no longer in the Holocene and we must act differently because the planet is changing. Well, how would the worldview of the Kogi people respond to that? They're very attuned to the river systems of the Northern Andes, but they're not attuned to the Himalayas and the monsoon pattern associated with the Himalayas. They're not attuned to the Sahel region in Southern Africa or Central Africa. They're not attuned to Siberia or the great boreal forest of the North. How could they be? That's not even appropriate to, to suggest. 
they are very good within their domain, but that larger scale requires a coherent way of converging, a coherent way of bringing the knowledge together. And the framework of earth system science enables that. So just, just like the framework of evolution enables a coherence of understanding all life. And so, um, so that, I think that's the real power of this approach of the third world is that we're in a time when we're, we need this convergence of knowledge to be able to make ethical and effective decisions. And, um, and that we need both, this sort of best of the modern world and the best of the indigenous traditions. And that gets us away from this Rousseau-esque um, uh, admiration of what the traditional peoples, and I'm using that the the, the word uh, in uh, with in, in quotes, but but this idea of oh, you know, the, how wonderful it would be to live like the indigenous people, and we need to reject this part of the culture, and it, it's still very oppositional. When actually, first of all, it's it's not practical, it's not doable, but but as you mentioned, the complementarity that that synergy. Is, is probably what's going to get us through this this ethic of care to come together with the best of both. And, and, but that's something that's actually not talked about all that often. Yeah, it's not talked about all that often, and it's also not embedded within the cosmological story, or as someone like Brian Swim would say, the universe story, or David Christian, um, who has the story of, the, of big history. There are various ways of saying this, but there is a history. Where, you know, the Big Bang and cosmic evolution, and, and that history is told by science. And because it's told by science, it is also tentative and changing as we gather new information. It's evolving as a story. And it is profoundly compatible with indigenous wisdom traditions, profoundly. So instead of saying something like, you know, Columbus discovered America, like what, what about all the indigenous people that were there before? Did he just discover all of these, you know, passive pawns in the great chess game of the story of European conquest? That's what that story does. Now, if we come back and say, well, you know, all European people at one point in time were indigenous people too, because all humans were indigenous for the majority of history. Where does that story come from? It comes from science. It comes from paleontology, anthropology, archaeology, geology, cultural history. And so, um, so that is a blending of knowledge that did not specifically come from an indigenous culture, but to the best of its ability, learned from and documented and studied indigenous cultures, like hunter-gatherer societies and horticultural societies and nomadic societies and so on. And so, um, so I think this way of recognizing that it's very complex what we're talking about, but it's also new. This way of knowing couldn't have existed without the tools of modern science. And there's a whole realm. So, so one of the sub areas, I mentioned that I studied physics and I studied philosophy. But I also was really interested in an area that you could say in a kind of combined way is the history, sociology, and philosophy of science, which are all woven together. So the history, sociology, and philosophy of science explores things like, what is the role of the microscope in developing the theory of germs? where there's a socially constructed context of artifacts, instruments, and interpretations that changes as new instruments enable new modes of perception. And this creates new knowledge systems. And you see, that's a sociological exploration. And so we need that, that way of thinking to be able to see that the scientific revolution created new ways of knowing. And of course, the, the critique of science is also a, a new way of knowing. And so it's it's in sort of in all directions. It's adding elements of something new. 
just as humans became a planetary species, starting contained on the continent of Africa, and then later to Eurasia, and then they all dipped down into Australia, where the Aboriginal people have been for about 80,000 years, and the Polynesian, um, you know, stuff going across the Pacific and into you know, all the islands of the Polynesian, you know, the, anyway, on and on, we can see like it started in one continent and it spread. And the big shift started about 500 years ago with the birth of globalization, which was the invention of the trade stock company and joint stock investment by the Dutch people, the spread of different kinds of, con of colonial conquest, Spanish Armadas, the British, the French, the Dutch, and so on. And what they did is they moved across the world conquering and extracting. And one good thing that happened from that, somewhat accidentally, was it created cosmopolitanism, which is it created a way in which you could learn about the spices of India and bring something like tea from India to England. And now we think of tea time as a quintessentially British thing, but it's from India. And then coffee, people drink coffee all over the world, it's from South America. And so what's happened is we have globalized things that were regional, and there are very dark sides to that. So I'm, I'm not meaning to brush over those. I'm just wanting to emphasize this third world element, which is that here I am. I'm in Colombia drinking coffee from Colombia. But I lived in Seattle for a while. Seattle's a place that is famous for its coffee. By the way, there's zero coffee grown in Washington state around Seattle. It's not the right climate for it. Uh, so, so we see these interesting blends or like the Mediterranean and grapes for making wine. And now some of the best wine is in California. How did that even happen? Well, they brought the, the grapes from Europe. And that was this globalization process. So one benefit of that is that the traditional ecological knowledge is now augmented by globalization, augmented by First Nations peoples gathering together at the United Nations to speak on behalf of First Nation peoples as though they are unified. But they're only unified in a narrative that says all of humanity came from indigenous culture, and there are remnants of that indigenous culture all over the planet that has survived or not survived colonial conquest and genocide, and that they are, by and large, the stewards of our ecological wealth and abundance. And we must listen to them for very practical reasons, without even the ethical part, which is still there, or the spiritual part. And so, and then when we add those in, it's even more, it's like even more of a reason to do it. So I see this, this way of holding, like there's a thread and I would say the thread is almost like it's in the future. Like it's pulling me forward. You know, I'm gesturing, I know we're, we're going to have the audio recording, but if you imagine that I took a piece of string from the center of my chest, pulled it forward and pulled my body forward, it's pulling us forward in this way that we are attracted to a better way of living. And that better way of living is a combination of the best of science and the best of indigenous wisdom. And let's talk about the practical, as you mentioned, and specifically some of your work with uh, the design school uh, for regenerating Earth. Some of the talks that you've been speaking to, some, some of the projects, that the, the, the three different uh, elements of, of your work. How does that fall in? And specifically, uh, and I guess it starts with place-based, and that's where my first question is, but how does the place-based also resonate throughout and then come back? How does that cycle happen? If you could if you could describe a bit and speak to that. Yeah, so let me start by saying the Design School for Regenerating Earth 
is as audacious as it is ambitious. Because look at its name. What does it mean to regenerate the earth? Most people are like, I wish I could regenerate the little patch of grass next to the sidewalk on the street in front of my apartment building. And so to say for the whole planet is, well, it, it should humble us. I would say it that way. It should really humble us. And so one of the questions that comes up very quickly in thinking about regenerating the entire earth is what is that? What does it mean to regenerate the earth? And that starts to make sense and becomes really coherent uh, with a very simple and deceptive statement, which is everything on earth that happens, happens somewhere. It's a deceptive statement because it seems like, well, duh, of course, if something happens, it happens somewhere. Well, all right, that means it's place-based. means that there's a place in which it happens. There's a point source emitter for sulfur that's coming from burning coal that makes acid rain you know, like there's a place that it comes from and a place where the acid rain falls. Like there's always a place. That is important because the other thing we need to know about the earth is that it is nested and embedded systems with very strong interdependencies, which is to say every part of the earth is connected to every other part of the earth through a diversity of processes, not just through a single process. So if I say, all right, I want to look at the Great Lakes of North America. The Great Lakes of North America hold 20% of the fresh water on Earth. The same amount of water as the entire Amazon basin of South America. And the Amazon basin is as large as the United States. So this is like a huge concentration of water in the Great Lakes. Notice what I already did. I already created a story that compared two parts of the Earth on a large scale to give us a global perspective based on places. The place, which is the 200 river basins of the Amazon, and the place, which is the collection of Great Lakes in North America. I'm already using place-based thinking to create a connection. But now if we drop down into something more local and ask a specific question, all right, they're the Algonquin people of the northern shores of Lake Ontario in today's greater Toronto area. They traded with seashells from the ocean. There's no ocean in Lake Ontario. Where did they get those seashells? Well, it turns out that the Algonquin people were really good at building canoes. And there was a pathway from Lake Ontario up to a place called Lake Simcoe, up to a place called Lake Huron. And there are short land routes and extended water routes, which means you could take things from the shore of Lake Ontario, walk them across a short distance of land, put them in a canoe, go across Lake Simcoe. From Lake Simcoe, carry them a short difference, distance through a river that drains into Lake Huron. From Lake Huron, you can go on in your canoe. There's an island in Lake Huron on the northern part. You go around that northern passage of Lake Huron from east to west, get to the western shore. You're not very far from Lake Superior. Then you take a land route from Lake Huron to Lake Superior and go east, and Lake Superior is huge, it's the biggest of the Great Lakes. You go east to west across, the, across Lake Superior and you end up in modern day Duluth, Minnesota. Why is that important? Because Duluth, Minnesota is the birthplace, the most northern place for starting the Mississippi River that drains into the Gulf of Mexico. And the Algonquin people traded up and down the Gulf of Mexico and across the Great Lakes with the Gulf of Mexico, which is why there were seashells in present-day Toronto. So now you can see 
that what I've just done is I've told you a real story of the Algonquin people and their trade network connecting places through a cultural practice of canoes, regional exchange, shared language, and land structures like rivers, land masses, and lakes. So if we want to regenerate the earth, we need to go to places from those places, from each place, ask ourselves, what is it embedded within? Southern Ontario or Toronto is embedded within the drainage of Lake Ontario, which is connected through a set of landforms, including a thing called the Niagara Escarpment, which separates Lake Huron from Lake Ontario, and trade networks. So there's human, economic, and cultural connection, and there's ecological land-based connection. And those connections allow each place to become part of a larger uh, web of relationships. So the way that the work of the design school, um, the way that it's unfolding, is that we activate landscapes. And all that really means is that we're invited into a landscape, like being invited to Toronto. And in that landscape, we give talks and workshops where we share this embedded story of place with the people who are in the place. Like, look, here's satellite images of the Great Lakes taken from Google Earth. Here we zoom in to the Toronto area. We zoom out to the Great Lakes. We zoom out to North America. And because we have that visual tool to move up and down in space, now we can start to see how the places are connected. So how do the people in Toronto feel about the people in Cleveland? Cleveland is on the southern shore of Lake Erie. Is Lake Erie connected to Lake Ontario? Yes. Niagara Falls, and that little gap where Buffalo is, is where those two lakes don't quite meet. And they don't meet because of the Niagara Escarpment, which is this, look it up if you don't know what it is, Niagara Escarpment is incredible, unique, 2,000 mile long hill. It's a hill like a line, 2,000 miles long. And the Erie Canal, the famous Erie Canal, connects Lake Erie to Rochester, New York. And Rochester, New York drains into Lake Ontario. It's on the shore of Lake Ontario. And so we start to see these connections are real. They're economic. They're still used to this day. And so we start to see this connectivity pattern. And from that connect connectivity pattern, a source of empowerment emerges. Because most people who are thinking about global challenges, like global warming or biodiversity loss or whichever one they're looking at, and they feel powerless. Like I can do a tiny little thing, but it doesn't leverage change. It turns out the best leverage for change is the paradigmatic understanding of nested interdependence. So let me unpack this. A paradigm is like a way of organizing your view of the world. And a paradigm based on embedded interdependence recognizes that each part is connected to a larger whole, which is also connected to a larger whole, and that there are relationships that go up and down between those parts and those holes, with those parts and those holistic systems. So someone who's like, well, I live in a place called Caledon, which is in southern Ontario, over on the western side. I know Caledon because we visited there on our tour. Anyone who doesn't know Caledon, it is like an amazing place of regenerative agriculture and farming. And it's right by the Niagara Escarpment. And it's about an hour and a half or two hours away from downtown Toronto. And it's in this flat open plains. So why do we care about Caledon? Because Caledon's pretty close to Lake Huron. It's not very far from a thing called the Oak Ridges Moraine, which is this giant structure of gravel and sand laid down by the, the scraping of the Earth's crust 
during the last two and a half million years of ice ages, which means all of the water that hits it, 100% of the precipitation is absorbed into the land and comes out as rivers and marshlands, including creating five rivers that drain into the city of Ontario, uh, the city of Toronto itself. So Caledon is connected to these drainage basins in the land itself. Now, the farmers probably know this because they care about what kind of soil they have and where the water comes from, and they're paying attention to the weather. But the people in the towns and the cities may be sort of ecologically blind, and they don't see that. So to come there and give a talk and say, look, there are these features of the land, and your place and your food supply are connected to these features of the land, now they can see the empowerment of embeddedness. I take a local action here within this larger system that I'm a part of. Someone else in another part of the same system, with the same awareness of the larger system, takes a small action where they are. And notice that those two actions have three places. They have the place of each action, which is one, two, two actions, and the place of their relationship to the larger holistic understanding they have of the connected system. And this is how empowerment emerges. My local actions can affect the interdependencies of larger systems if I cooperate with people who are in other parts of those larger systems. And that's why we call it bioregional activation. We're activating energetic exchanges between parts of landscapes that don't know they're connected to each other. And as they become aware, as they become conscious, that is that Gaia consciousness, they become aware that they're connected to each other. And now the landscape is aware of itself through the humans who are cooperating within parts of the landscape. The landscape might be a watershed. We're like, oh, there's point sources of pollution in the watershed. We want to be sure the water is clean. So I've got to be sure there's no pollution coming from my part. You got to be sure there's no pollution coming from your part. If I have privilege and advantage over you, like if I know more, if I have more infrastructure and capacity, it's the same watershed. I need to help you. So inequality is no longer a problem. It's an opportunity. Inequality is the ability to create a flow of energy and resources between different parts of the same system because the health of each part is recognized as part of the whole. Now, doesn't that sound indigenous? It should, but it's also scientific. And so this is what we're doing with the Design School for Regenerating Earth is activating stories of activation, stories of engagement and shared understanding to create frameworks of cooperation at landscape scales and between landscapes at larger, like at the scale of the Great Lakes. So not just Toronto and Cleveland, but Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. And then from there, you can go out. In Southern Lake Ontario, you go a little south, you have the drainage to the Chesapeake Bay. Whoa, now we're talking about major population centers. And so, you know, New York. And so all these things are connected by landscapes. And that's why the consciousness of the earth, the consciousness that we're part of the earth, is extremely practical. It's, a, it's like utterly and concretely, almost mundane practical. The water here drains into that river. The water there drains into that river. It's the same river. All right, we both got to care for the same river. And, um, and so that's what we're doing with the Design School for Regenerating Earth. There are a lot more ways we can get into the, the granularity of permaculture practices and reforestation and, and so on, all those pieces. But without this nested story, we don't know how to use that knowledge of those practices.
and how to be strategic and what to prioritize and what's more important to do first and why is it more important to do first. For us to create those frameworks of cooperation, we need to think in terms of the whole system, which means we need to already be cooperating in service to the whole system. And I find it fascinating how the conversation began with looking at the cell and also looking at, at Gaia. And also that that's that's nestedness and, and that's also the interdependency. That's also similar. That those are fractals in some ways, I guess, in, in some some life way. And, and what you described was the same, depending on where we're zooming in. It, we we are we are encountering same dynamics and 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 that connection. And like I, I'm I'm conscious of time here, so I I just like to ask you uh, what what's next on your on your horizons? What where are you taking this? What what is going to be the ambition? That what what is um the direction in which you're headed? Well, I want to take a moment to mention. I have to mention it because I've talked about it in many other interviews. People who know me will know that I've elaborated on this quite a lot. But we're in a process of planetary breakdown and collapse. The old order of the planet is crumbling and a new order is emerging and it's very chaotic and very messy. Like I mentioned, we've left the Holocene. We've left a geologic age. And so um, there are a lot of implications to that. And one piece is that we have to understand what's breaking down and what can no longer be sustained. But there's another piece, which is this beautiful, elegant metaphor, composting. Composting is simply taking the freed up nutrients of decomposition and reorganizing them to be structured in a way that they support life, which is that you take your food scraps and you turn it into soil. That way of thinking, the, the larger vision of where we're going is that we have to compost our planetary civilization. We have to compost this extractive globalized system. And in composting, that means we need to free up nutrients. Using that metaphor, indigenous knowledge and scientific knowledge become ingredients that are freed up. Economic capacity, money, land, and place become resources or nutrients that are freed up. Right now, they're all, well, not all, but a lot of them are very entrenched, very difficult to change. And a lot of people are really afraid of the collapse, so afraid they don't even think about it. But if the globalized system collapses, yes, it causes short-term harm and death and suffering. But death is part of life. So the question becomes, how do we reorganize the flow of life? How do we actively compost? Notice composting is active. Decomposition is like, well, you know, there was roadkill. Someone hit a deer and the deer is just decomposing. Compost is I took my food scraps. I put them in a certain kind of pile. I structured or mixed it in a particular way. Maybe I added microorganisms. I monitored and tracked it. Maybe I added earthworms. Whatever I did, it's a, a consciously guided system that's guided toward healthy soil. We need exactly that way of thinking for the entire planet. How do we compost the human presence on Earth into living systems that are regenerating each part of the Earth as that old system is dying? Now, I'm drawing on language used by people like Joanna Macy and others who have been talking about this for decades, which is part of that freeing up of nutrients. But our big, um, like, it's not my big vision. I am like one embodiment or one expression of this vision. And the Design School for Regenerating Earth, right now we have 70 members and we're one month old. We're tiny. We're tiny. But the vision that we are acting out is for people all over the planet to organize themselves as living systems within holistic landscapes, embedded within relationships between landscapes, like how 
Cleveland and Toronto are connected into larger landscape patterns. And in that way, become a tapestry of Earth's regeneration. And so concretely, we're preparing for a, a bioregional activation tour in the Cascades and the Salish Sea between British Columbia, Oregon, and Washington. That'll happen in October. And we have been creating and are continuing to refine learning supports for people in the different landscapes to support each other and learn with each other. We're creating dynamic funding and governance models for people to bring resources together and share them in the sort of the stone soup way and then allocate them to the priorities of their own landscapes. And so we're doing this work in combination with other people doing their work with the vision of this story getting out. And I don't just mean people hearing about it, I mean people living it. We need people living it. And we need it yesterday. Like it's urgent. So, so as soon as we can, we need to be doing it. So that's, that's where we see ourselves going, is living out a narrative that we hope is coherent enough that it spreads. And that a lot of people learn to live this way because this is honestly the only way that humanity can guide ourselves back to systemic health, is to integrate ourselves with the other living systems of the planet which we do at the landscape scale. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's what we're doing. Listen, Joe, I want to thank you so much for your time and, uh, and, and all your wonderful thoughts and, uh, and good, good luck with everything and, and uh, your real inspiration. Thank you. Thank you, Benjamin. Lovely to be here with you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. Check out also Intrepid Ed, www.intrepidednews.com. And we always look forward to your comments, your insights, and your suggestions. Uh, Leave us five stars, subscribe to the podcast, et cetera, et cetera. And again, check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye.